Here we go, it's episode 5 of the NBA edition of RJ Bell's Dream Preview. I'm Joe Serralo. Joining me, it's the one and only Mackenzie Rivers. Catch him on Twitter, at Mac and Rivers. Catch me on the socials, that's on Twitter, at the Joe Serralo. And on Instagram, at Joe Serralo. And Mackenzie is coming off a successful best bet, whereas I am coming off my first loss. I dropped to 3-1 and one on my best bets. He improves to 2-2, two and two. so Mackenzie, I'm coming for you this episode. Just giving you the best bet I have on any particular day of the week. Of course, you can always get all my exclusive plays at pregame.com. Proud to say 8-1 and one on NBA Max plays. A couple times a month. So I always tell my clients, a couple times a month, there's that golden opportunity. We found a couple this week. Check me out on pregame.com. Definitely do so if you want to make money. And if you don't like making money, well, then don't look at his picks. Mackenzie, we've opened up each of the last three episodes with a COVID update. Last episode, I revealed that I had COVID. I am officially out of quarantine per the new five-day guidelines. According to the CDC, if you're fully boosted, vaccinated, and asymptomatic, I I am all three. But let's get into the latest in the NBA with COVID. We've got a canceled Nuggets Warriors game. That game should have been in the middle of the second quarter right now, but Denver has an outbreak. Their head coach, Michael Malone, as well as three players, Jeff Green, Bones Highland, VCU's finest, and Zeke Naji. All four of them, as well as two assistants uh, per Woj, have COVID. You've got Julius Randle. He has entered protocols. He is out for Friday night. I guess by the time you're listening to this, that's tonight's Knicks Thunder game. And Doc Rivers, the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, he's out in health and safety protocols as well. 36 referees are out, McKenzie. 36 officials. I mean, you can't make this up. Exactly right. Head coaches include Doc Rivers, Frank Vogel, Chauncey Billups. I mean, I guess with the referees, it goes to show you why you shouldn't fly coach. I mean, if they were flying first class everywhere, I bet they wouldn't have necessarily (laughs) one third of their staff. I'm not exactly sure about that in jest. But yeah, I mean, they're traveling a lot, both NBA players and referees and coaches a lot of different chances to exposure we've seen Omnicron take over america 70 percent of infections it seems like now draymond green is one of those players in protocol let me let me let me throw at you his quote from today venting his frustrations and let me get what you think so this is draymond green talking about the cancellation canceled denver nuggets game today thursday draymond green How do you continue to cancel games when you've implemented rules to prevent this from happening? Is that not a competitive advantage for other teams? The guys that we didn't have due to the protocol listed played no role in Tuesday's loss? Pick a side, but don't straddle the fence. So it seems like, to me, Draymond Green is saying, if COVID is affecting teams so much that they can't play, how is that different from COVID affecting our team where some of our key players, a.k.a. me, Draymond Green, are not out there? Yeah, and to me, this is Draymond Green sounding like a big fat crybaby. I mean, I'm sorry, but give me a break, right? You all know the rule. Uh, If you're an NBA player, you know if you can field a team with eight guys, then you're going to roll. You're going to play. Golden State didn't have their best eight guys on Tuesday night, but I believe they had nine or ten guys for that game, that part one of the supposed back-to-back against Denver. The Nuggets lost three players today. This isn't because they lost their coach. It's not because they lost assistants. It's because they lost three players and they could not field a team of eight active NBA players. And and you can't just go sign a guy the day of, you know, if this was tomorrow, 
Maybe the Nuggets could sign one or two guys to a 10-day contract, a hardship deal, and then they could get the game in. But it's the day of. They lost three guys. I, I don't frankly understand what Draymond's crying about when the Nuggets could not field an active roster. Well, I guess the onus goes on the Nuggets. Do they necessarily want to sign that eighth player if they could, you know, maybe take a week off instead? There's some conflicted (laughs) motivations, but I mean, we all are in a very non-ideal circumstance in sports and across the world. It kind of shows you that the NBA prioritizes getting games up in action, but that the competitive balance of the regular season is kind of a secondary thought because yeah, the Nuggets or the Warriors, like let's say you had nine players available, but it, it it was life and death whether or not if you lost the next game, you'd be fired as a head coach. Maybe you take that ninth guy out to the strip club and and uh, <laughs> you know have a say, hey charisma, come over here. You, you're coughing, yeah, come over here. I, I want you to talk to my friend Jeff Green right here. You could theoretically see some maniacal Machiavellian ways to get your team so COVID up that you don't play and avoid necessarily a tough game. But nobody, I mean, I think Draymond Green has to be practical. Nobody is thinking, let me get this game canceled because it'll be good for my team long-term. People are just trying to make it through. So what you're telling me is that Michael Malone, who has led the Denver Nuggets to top seed contention, seemingly each of the past five, six seasons in the Western Conference, you're telling me he flew down to Atlanta, took a trip to Magic City, strictly Mm -hmm. for the wings, of course, Yep. And got chastity to give Bones Highland a lap dance to keep him out of today's game. Is that what you're telling me? Brilliant. Wow, Michael <laughs> Malone. I did not know you had this kind of Machiavellian ways about you. But hey, result is they didn't have a loss today. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have a loss. They're 1-0 this week against the Warriors when that easily could have been 1-1. One one. But hey, the 76ers didn't have their head coach. And, and I believe I've said this before. On this show that of the four major sports, I believe a head coach matters the least in the NBA compared to, you know, baseball managers or football head coaches or hockey head coaches. But Doc Rivers, to me, is one of the few head coaches who really matters, who brings out the absolute best in his guys wherever he goes, at least for the regular season. Same cannot necessarily be said for the postseason, but Rivers entered protocols and the 76ers who have been, I would say, by most people's standards a disappointment this season they went to Brooklyn they beat the Nets outright tonight yes Doc Rivers has said himself it's all about talent this is a talent league this is all about the roster that's why when you see Doc River goes Doc Rivers goes out and the Nets go from three and a half point favorites to five and a half six point favorites of course hindsight's 2020 but that could easily signal to a savvy better that there's value on the 76ers because everybody that's suiting up the sneakers for the Sixers was out there, Embiid, Harris, Curry. Nobody was missing. Doc Rivers goes out. I don't think that's worth two points. I think Vegas made a misstep overreacting to that news. Absolutely with you 100% right there. That was a Sixers hammer line. And like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty. But forget just the spread. I mean, the value on the money line there. That was major value. If you liked Philly to win outright when they were plus three, plus three and a half, then at the jump to plus five and a half, plus six, if you were really all in on the 76ers and the guys who they had on the court, uh, that was your time to hit a money line. You talk about a talent-driven league, though, McKenzie. And today, as we record this, it is December 30th. It is LeBron James's 37th birthday. So I think right here, right now, in episode five of the NBA edition of RJ Bell's Dream Preview, I think it is time for McKenzie and myself 
to debate where LeBron James ranks among your best all-time NBA players. Because Mackenzie, I know you don't agree with me, but I say LeBron's the GOAT. I say LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. So you think he's the greatest basketball player? Not that he's had the greatest NBA career. I'm guessing you think that too. But you think putting that to the side, putting the NBA career aside, if we're just talking about who was the best basketball player, you say LeBron James number one. I say number one to both. Greatest NBA career, which is not done, and uh, and also the best basketball player of all time. I don't even know where to begin. I'm just so far away from that notion. I mean, where to begin? Could you imagine someone else, someone else playing 19 years in the league and getting to pick their team for the last 10 years, winning two championships among those 10 years and playing with two Hall of Famers in Cleveland, two, three Hall of Famers in Miami. Like, I just don't see the positive case. Like, I I could go to this series, to that series, to this stat, to that stat, but I really don't know where to begin. I just feel like Hakeem Olajuwon, like, this is the story. This is the story. A player X gets drafted high by by a team, a team that's never won any championships. That team, that player at a very young age takes his team to the finals against one of the all-time great teams. He loses in six games, not four games. He doesn't get swept. He loses in six games. To this point, he's played with zero Hall of Famers. Yes, Ralph Sampson had an all-star appearance early in his career, but essentially zero all-star appearances with his teammates, but he's made one finals. He doesn't leave teams. He doesn't ship. He doesn't say, hey, Magic Johnson, you got a spare roster spot. Hey, Michael Jordan, I heard you could use some help down low. No, none of that. He stays on this low franchise, this small market that's never won anything. Doesn't get another all-star teammate. Keeps grinding, keeps grinding. Finally makes the, makes the playoffs with a decent team. No all-stars, but a decent team. Goes up against the MVP in the league. Kills him in David Robinson. Dominates him. Not even close. Goes up against one of the best centers of his generation in, in Patrick Ewing. Dominates him. Not even close. There's only one person in the fight. Wins the championship. Everybody goes crazy. Heart of a champion. That spirit, not because he didn't win a championship, but because he did win a championship, Hakeem Olajuwon, that spirit draws the only other Hall of Famer all-star player that he ever got to play with in his career. In 95, Clyde Drexler comes on board, makes the all-star team with Hakeem. They win it again. Two championships Zero free agent signings of note. Zero Chris Bosh's Dwayne Wade's coming to town. Zero, hey, let me ship to the better team because I want to win a championship. Yet he wins two championships. You telling me if Hakeem Olajuwon got to have not zero, but five, six Hall of Famers on his team every year that he can accomplish four championships in 20 years? I just don't even think it's close. Like Michael Jordan is stratospheres away as far as bringing a team to a championship. But guys like Hakeem Olajuwon, Larry Bird, Shaquille O'Neal, in my opinion, for a year-to-year basis, they won with a lot, lot less talent on beside them than LeBron's been able to do against equal competition. So, that said, I think Hakeem Olajuwon is by far better than LeBron James. He's one of seven people I put into that category, and here's the seven. Uh, by the way, I'm not putting Steph Curry and Kevin Durant on this list, although their highest of highs, I think, also surpasses LeBron. So 
by the end of this. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Uh, uh, hey, excuse me, sir. Uh, excuse me, sir. This is Zencaster, so we can't talk over <laughs> each other. Sleepy's going to have to delete that. But he, um, uh, for the people that didn't hear that, he, uh, uh, he fell over on his chair when I said that, but it's not even close. Shooting matters in this league, and if you're going to build a championship roster, you can't have one guy that can't shoot that needs the ball all the time. That usually doesn't work, that being LeBron James. So here are the seven players, not including the current players that are better than LeBron all time, but the seven players historically better than LeBron all time in rough order, Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Larry Bird, Shaquille O'Neal, and just barely, I think this one is close, but just barely, I mean, you look at what he did at 20 years old. LeBron James couldn't back down J.J. Barea at 26 in the finals. Magic Johnson was dominating a really good 76ers team at 20 years old in the finals. That's why, although it's close, he's not a great defender either, but I have Magic Johnson at number seven all time, eight, nine, somewhere in there is Kobe, somewhere in there is LeBron. I could see arguments either way. What do you think? So first off, considering you just rattled off about nine guys and I didn't hear Tim Duncan's name, a little disappointed. No, no, not even close. Not even close. Sorry, <laughs> Tim Duncan, also very overrated. Tony Parker and Mano Ginobili, one of the great backcourts of all time. They, in my opinion, were the drivers of those championships. Interesting. I think Tony Parker is very overrated. I think Tim Duncan is very underrated. Look, I love everything that you said about Hakeem Olajuwon. I love Hakeem Olajuwon. He was incredible. You really undersold Ralph Sampson. Four all-star appearances in his first oh, four seasons. Over those four seasons, averaged 20 points, 11 boards per contest. I mean, Ralph Sampson, while it was a short-lived peak, was a really, really dominant force in the post for those first four seasons with Houston. Back then, when Sampson and Olajuwon were playing together, big men mattered more or as much as ever. Now, you look at the league, big men obviously matter less than they ever had because it's a three-point driven league. It's something I despise, but it's just the matter of where we're at now in basketball. Hakeem Olajuwon is one of the top 10, 15 NBA players of all time, but to put him ahead of LeBron James, McKenzie, I genuinely believe that you're a bigger basketball fan than I am, and I am absolutely floored I mean, I don't know if it's the Chicago in you, just not wanting Cleveland to have nice things, hating the Cavaliers so much because you're a Bulls guy. I don't know where it's coming from, McKenzie, but I am absolutely floored. If you look at LeBron James's career, first off, and this is, I guess, where you can separate the best basketball player of all time versus best NBA career, because if you look at LeBron, the basketball player, just physically, naturally, no one rivals him. I mean, the closest I think you could probably get just physical attributes is Giannis right now. And I'm not saying Giannis is the best of all time or top 10 of all time, but I'm saying just the freak of nature that LeBron is. I mean, this is a guy who has played all five positions throughout his NBA career. Maybe not so much shooting guard, but point guard, both forward positions, and even center at times. He did it just a couple games ago, and he's done so dominantly wherever he's had to play. He's not the prima donna, who determines when and where he wants to do something. To his credit, yes, he has assembled some of his teams, but ever since Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett joined Paul Pierce in Boston, that's been the norm in this league for almost the past 15 years. LeBron has still been a team-first guy. He is the 
fastest player as of this week to 36,000 points, was the fastest to 1,000, to 2,000, to 3,000, and every 1,000 points in between 1 and 36. I mentioned switching positions. In year 17, he switched to point guard for the full season for the LA Lakers. And what did he do in that season? He averaged a career high and a league high 10.2 assists per game. To go with his 25 points per game, same total from the year before, so his scoring didn't suffer, and he won a ring. That's the most important piece of that. Look, he's the only player to record 36,000 points, 9,000 boards, and 9,000 assists. He will be the league's all-time leading scorer when he retires, and he will be the first player ever to record a career triple quintuple because he will also eclipse 10,000 boards and 10,000 dimes. He's currently eighth all-time in assists. He is not a selfish player. He is going to finish his career fourth all-time in assists. He will have at least one more ring to take him to five, so he will finish his career within at least one of Michael Jordan. And yes, I know people always want to point to Jordan and say he was 6-0, and and that is absolutely astonishing. It's absolutely incredible. I don't want to take anything away from Michael. I think he's the second best basketball player of all time. But LeBron's been there 10 times, and something has to be said for that. I know he's only won four, but he's gotten there 10 times. There's a lot more star power in the league nowadays than there was when Jordan played. And Jordan, don't forget, had Scotty. He had Dennis Rodman. He had Steve Curry. He had Bill Wennington. I'm not saying that these guys are Hakeem and Drexler out there with Jordan, but they're damn good ballplayers. LeBron took a Cleveland Cavaliers team to the 2007 Finals as a 22-year-old whose starting five consisted of Larry Hughes, Sasha Pavlovich, Drew Gooden, and the Big Z. Who could forget Zydruna Silgowskis? That postseason, as a 22-year-old, he led the NBA in scoring, was the only 500-point scorer in that postseason. Did he come up flat in the finals against the juggernaut Spurs dynasty? Absolutely, he did. But he took that team that would not have made the playoffs without him on it, took him to the NBA Finals on his back as a 22-year-old. I'm sorry, man. LeBron James is the greatest to ever lace him up. So many things to unpack there. You had a lot, a lot of (laughs) counting stats. Yeah. I think if you look at accumulated NBA achievements, LeBron has a great case to be the number one basketball player of all time. I don't really care about the NBA. I love basketball. The NBA is one vehicle in which some of the greatest basketball that's ever been played has been played, but I don't care about it. If you played 40 games a year or 80 games a year before the playoffs, I'm still going to wait until the playoffs before I actually care because that's what we call do or die moments. Hakeem Olajuwon, by the way, won two games when at a very young age, 24 or something, brought a team that wouldn't make the playoffs all the way to the finals. And he also beat the 1986 Celtics, one of Bill Simmons says the greatest team ever assembled twice in the playoffs. He didn't get swept. He won twice. And by the way, last thing I'll say about this, I think it's a great debate. A lot of different ways to go. I don't think it's particularly close as far as the greatest of all time. But if you want to argue LeBron versus Shaq, LeBron versus Larry Bird, there's a lot of great arguments there. I think it's very close. It all depends about kind of how you look at the game. LeBron James has won 35% of his finals games. I think when he gets to the toughest competition, there's just a couple guys that are better. I don't think it's a big insult to say that Larry Bird is better than you. But by the way, Western Conference Finals, 1986, Hakeem Olajuwon trying to make his first finals, went up 
against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and dominated him. This is a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that the year before had won NBA Finals. This wasn't washed Kareem. This was not peak Kareem, but this was a very, very good champion level, one of the great centers of all time. And Hakeem Olajuwon, much like he did to David Robinson later on in his career, much like he did to Patrick Ewing in the finals, he just looked like a grown man playing against his little brother, playing against his son. He sunned him. It wasn't close. Hakeem Olajuwon, LeBron James against a Ben Wallace Detroit Pistons team, yeah, scored 25 points a game and won a very low-scoring Eastern Conference Finals in 2006. Hakeem Olajuwon against one of the great centers of all time and Magic Johnson and a Lakers team that won three championships in four years dominated him. LeBron's never done anything close to that, in my opinion. Not even close. 2016 finals against a suspended team with Bogut injured and Iguodala injured and Draymond Green suspended. Yeah, I get it. He ended up winning the championship with some chicanery and all that, and he gets that. Cleveland, he gets that. No one can ever take that from him. Unless, you know, the FBI reviews the tapes and realizes how, how much cheating was going on during that series. But no one's ever going to take that from him. But in my opinion, that achievement, winning as an underdog against a better team, isn't even close to what Hakeem Olajuwon did in the late 80s and early 90s. At that point, I mean, we didn't notice this because Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan at that time. But Hakeem Olajuwon playing in the late 80s, early 90s, that level is just a level above anywhere that Kobe or LeBron ever got to. Well, first off, bringing Kobe into the equation, look, rest in peace. I, I have all the respect in the world for who Kobe Bryant was as a player and as a person. Kobe is not, to me, a top 10 basketball player of all time. Top two toughest of all time. Mentally, him and Michael, I think, are above everyone else. But talent-wise and achievement-wise, Kobe, to me, is, you can argue, ninth or 10th. But to me, he's not top eight, maybe not even top 10. LeBron, though. I mean, come on, don't sell short the only player ever to lead a 3-1 finals comeback. And, you know, I, you want to talk about I'm his teammates. It very short. You, you want, I, you, I know you are. You know, you want to talk about his teammates, right? Obviously, yes, in Miami. He had Dwayne Wade, and I think Chris Bosh was not his best self in Miami. Then he goes to Cleveland, right? And you've got Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. All-stars, yes. I mean, in the NBA, a lot of guys have been all-stars, right? Isaiah Thomas, who's bouncing around on 10-day contracts right now, who I personally love. I just don't think he's the best basketball player in the world. He's a two-time all-star, right? So yeah, you got Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. Where have those guys ever won without LeBron James? Kevin Love was one of the best centers in the game in his early years in Minnesota, never won squat. Kyrie Irving has gone to extremely talented teams, went to Boston, didn't win squat. So far with Brooklyn, and there's still plenty of time to go, so far with Brooklyn, hasn't won squat. Has made the headlines more for sitting out because he doesn't want to get vaccinated than he has for his actual play on the court. Kyrie Irving, without LeBron in Cleveland, couldn't achieve a thing. Kyrie Irving is just not all that he's chalked up to be. Individual talent. He's, you know, maybe the best ball handler in the game, but he's not a winner. Kevin Love was not a winner without LeBron. LeBron made the Cleveland Cavaliers winners himself. Did he have talent on the roster? Absolutely. So does every other competitive team in the NBA for the past 10, 15 years. They all have multiple all-stars if they're making a finals run. No one guy is leading a team. I mean, very few. there are very few instances of the Dirk-led Mavericks 
winning a finals, right? Uh, where you have that one centerpiece and then some good role players around him. It's a star powered league over the past 15 years. LeBron James, what he's done, uh, I mean, you know, I mentioned that 2017, just taking them to the finals with no supporting cast. Uh, I think his supporting cast has honestly been overhyped a lot of years. I, I think what we're seeing right now this year is probably the biggest disappointment considering the roster assembled without uh, around him because Russ is playing like garbage and Anthony Davis can't stay healthy and the Lakers have no depth. I think this is probably his most disappointing season, but LeBron has done plenty with, I think in reality, less than people actually give him credit for being around him. Kevin Love was ranked the year before he went to the Cavs by ESPN's 100-person panel. Uh, they asked every person of the 100-person panel to rank every player. Kevin Love, was, Kevin Love was ranked fourth that year. I thought that was ridiculous. He was not the fourth best player in the league. But that's how highly he was thought of. Dwayne Wade in 2011 was ranked the second best player in the league. I thought he was actually the first best player. My point is, these great, great players, when they're around LeBron, who, by the way, I don't want to make it lost. He's a great player. He's been a privilege to watch my entire basketball uh, watching life. Everyone assumes that everyone around LeBron is worse than, than they are when they're around LeBron. Anthony Davis, two years ago, was in the shortlist for best player in the league. His per player efficiency rating, VoIP, any of those VORP, any of those numbers put him as one of the best players in the league. Then he's LeBron LeBron. He's putting up this almost the same numbers in the playoffs in their finals run. And we say, oh well, well, he's a really good Robin because he's LeBron LeBron. I think there's this gravitational force that is um is false. And we're a betting show. Here's my best evidence why LeBron is overrated. If you bet against LeBron's team every single year, I haven't run the numbers recently, but considering this, like you said, is the most disappointing LeBron season yet, I'm pretty sure it's still the case. If you bet against LeBron's team every year since he left Miami and went to Cleveland, you're winning like 54, 55% of the time. They say you can't bet against this guy. In fact, you'd be better only betting against this guy, but people don't want to believe it. Well, look, the last thing I'll say, and I'll leave it at this, is that I agree with you. Kevin Love at number four, when he was rated the fourth best player in the league by ESPN, ridiculously overrated. Guy number one in Minnesota. Dwayne Wade at two, I, I think is spot on. I think Dwayne Wade is the best player LeBron has ever played with. And Anthony Davis. Now, I'm not on the air saying this, but I, I have a co-intern who can probably attest to this when I was interning for Adam Shine over at uh, Sirius XM two summers ago. I have never once thought of Anthony Davis as a top five player in the league. Always had him. I think the highest was probably eighth. Now, look, top 10, still amazing, but never thought Anthony Davis was a top five player in the league in his own right. Same thing as Kevin Love. Guy never won anything until he teamed up with LeBron James. Now, a couple nights ago, the Lakers and Grizzlies played in an incredible game. And as I'm watching that, and I'm watching LeBron play a phenomenal game, and I'm watching John Morant, who obviously led his team to victory, play a phenomenal game, I'm thinking, McKenzie, is this game somewhat of a passing of the torch in terms of faces of the NBA? LeBron has been the face of the NBA for 20 years. You can argue maybe over the last seven that Steph Curry has been a face of the league. But when you look at the 
21, 22, 23-year-olds. To me, John Morant, just based off of his personality, his talent, to me, John Morant is a perfect next face of the league for a post-Steph Curry face. Did you have the same thought at all in terms of somewhat of a passing of the torch, the 37-year-old to the 22-year-old? It's funny you mentioned that. I actually did to a large extent. I saw a lot of that second half, and we didn't talk about this before, but watching John Morant go toe-to-toe with LeBron in that fourth quarter, it made me think of Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods in that Tiger Woods used to be this presence that no one in his peer group wanted anything to do with because he was this larger-than-life dominant force that no one could even come close to. And usually on a Sunday, if you were close, he'd embarrass you and you didn't want any part of that. John Morant was not scared of LeBron in one shape or form. Just like Rory McIlroy loves Tiger Woods, respects Tiger Woods, can't stop talking about how great he is. John Morant may feel that way about LeBron, but he's not scared of him. And he's not worried about going toe-to-toe with him. He's not worried about his physicality the way back in the day. 2013, LeBron did instill that into his peers, into players younger than him. So, yeah, passing of the torch, I think, is right. And you look at the great, great young players. Luka Doncic out right now, hasn't really been in shape. Zion Williams on a milk carton somewhere. John Morant is that forest, just jumps off the screen. Awesome watch. Put up 41 against the Lakers in a low-scoring game. Just put the whole team on his back. Awesome to watch. Yeah, he's the kind of guy... That can, that can be the face of a league that people gravitate towards. And what's amazing is that you mentioned how bad LeBron has been to bet on throughout his career. Well, if you bet on LeBron James and the Cavaliers throughout his first tenure with Cleveland, back when he was that 22-year-old taking a team full of nobodies to the finals, you would have yep. made a lot of money back then. Yep. But Vegas adjusts, lines adjust, and for the same reason that some of the worst teams to bet on this season have been the Nets and the Lakers, and the Knicks because they were successful last year and came into this season with expectations. The Grizzlies, who I think had no expectations coming into the season, have been a top seven team to bet on in the league, covering 58% of the time, even better when John Morant is in the lineup over 60% of the time, and that is all because of John Morant, because I'm sorry, the Grizzlies, I know every now and then you'll get a 15 or 20 point performance from a member of that supporting cast, the Grizzlies are not a talented, deep team. John Morant is just that much of a star. We talk about, or I talked about rather, LeBron, the 22-year-old, taking the 07 Cavs to the finals. John Morant, the 22-year-old, I think is almost every bit the show that LeBron was at 22. Similarly, just doesn't have a cast around him. Let me say something good about LeBron. I know people get on me because maybe I'm from Chicago. I seem to be the one guy that has an objective opinion about LeBron, the eighth greatest player of all time. But no, let me say this about (laughs) LeBron. And this is something I deeply respect about him because I didn't always know this about him. And I learned this to be the case. LeBron at 22 and at 26 and at 28 had holes in his game that are strengths of his game, that are elite aspects of his game right now, post-game three ball, just a couple aspects of it. That isn't easy. People work their whole lives to be good, to be pro level at one aspect of basketball, to add parts to your game in the summer when you have, when everyone chorus around you calls you the greatest player that walks the earth to add key elements to your game is something that not many men walking around the earth have the humility 
to put them through that work. John Morant is in the bottom one percentile of defenders, according to Cleaning the Glass. They went, I think, 11 games without him. They held their opponent under their team total 10 times. They have a lot of structure on Memphis. They have a lot of defensive elements on Memphis. If John Morant, and he's only 22, can develop into a defensive level point guard that can fit into a system like that Memphis is trying to build, Tony Parker wasn't a great defender, but when he could be on the court when San Antonio Spurs were holding teams to 60 points a game, if he can at least be part of that great defense, that's how one championship level is unlocked. Memphis Grizzlies, since John Morant has been back, have maintained a lot of that defense that they were able to build when he was gone for 10 days due to COVID. That's the last piece of his game. He has that Derrick Rose mid-ranger. He has that Russell Westbrook athleticism. He has that Kobe Mamba mentality. He's there in the fourth quarter. But can he add that discipline? Shooting would help, too, on defense to be not only a great scorer, not only a star in the league, but a championship-level point guard. I don't, I don't think I thought that of him coming into the league. I do think now that he has the work ethic to get to that level, be a top-five player in this league in a couple of years. I'm with you, and here's why I'm buying into John Morant. Being able, like LeBron, to improve upon the few parts of his game where he isn't at an elite level just yet. His first two years, remember, this is just year three for him. His first two years in the league, he shot 31.5% from beyond the arc. That's really not great in in today's age. I mean, you know, it's better than Magic Johnson ever shot from three-point range, but right here in 2021... That doesn't necessarily cut it. This season, he is shooting 38.5% from three. That is a 7% jump from his first two seasons. He was six of seven from deep in their 104-99 win over the Lakers the other night. He's shown in just year three at 22, where say what you want about him and his work ethic. I'm 23. I was just a 22-year-old six months ago. 22-year-olds are immature, right? Not too many mature 22-year-olds out there. He recognized a fault in his game, put in the countless hours in the gym, and I think this speaks to the Kobe comparison you just made, the countless hours in the gym to improve upon it. And if he can do that on the defensive side of the ball, I agree with you. I think he will be a championship caliber player. The question moving forward is, will he be able to do that staying in Memphis? Or will he become Dame? Will he, you know, maybe get to one Western Conference Finals but not be able to get over the hump. Will he have to leave Memphis to do that, to attain a championship? That's all to be seen. He's young as hell. He's got plenty of time. But I would hate to see his career take a Dame Dame Lillard-like trajectory and essentially be really good on an individual level, but never get to hoist up the Larry O'Brien trophy because he stayed with the Grizzlies. That's the one thing that scares me. You mentioned Kobe, and I mentioned Kobe. Kobe Bryant had a very bad first playoff series but he shot the ball. He continued to shoot the ball. John Morant made the playoffs for the first time in his career. He shot nine threes in his first game, shot seven each game after that, ended up scoring 47. That's the kind of PTP or to steal a phrase. That's the kind of not scared of anything type of guy that I want to build my franchise around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, speaking of point guards and speaking of teams, I mentioned that Memphis, because of John Morant, has been – Surprisingly, one of the best teams, in fact, one of the best seven teams to bet on in the league this year. Well, I want to flip to another point guard 
on a team that has been the best team to bet on this season. The Cleveland Cavaliers, 25-7-2 and two against the spread. Well, their point guard, Ricky Rubio, just suffered a season-ending ACL tear in their last game against New Orleans. I say last game as we're recording this. I believe they played and lost tonight. The Cavs are hurting at the point guard position. Darius Garland, now he should be coming back. I believe in their next game, he's in health and safety protocols. But Colin Sexton, out for the year. Now Rubio, out for the year. Rubio was the one starting in Darius Garland's COVID uh, absence. How much will this injury impact Cleveland and their historic start against the spread moving forward? I'm glad you put this on the notes because I think this is one of the sneaky injuries that's going to probably change, could very easily change the playoff picture. Let's talk short term first. Darius Carland on the COVID list, Isaac Akuru on the COVID list. That makes it all the guards of Cleveland that started the season not going to be there in the near term. Colin Sexton on IR, Ricky Rubio, torn ACL. We just mentioned the other guards on COVID. So near term, and we just saw them get blown out by the Wizards who have a couple really good guards. I'd be looking to fade the, the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're 80% ATS on the season, but this isn't on the season. This week, the Cavs just got a whole lot different. Now on the year, can they make the playoffs? I think that would have been a lofty goal to start the year. I think most Cavs fans at 19 and 13, soon to be 19 and 14, think that's pretty much a given. I think it's far from a given. You're putting a lot on the shoulders of Darius Garland to be the one NBA caliber guard on a team full of bigs. I could see him easily wearing down and this kind of be a situation. We saw this with the 2019 Hornets, the number one ATS team up until January ended up 35% or so the rest of the year, missed the playoffs. Kemba Walker completely wore down as the one NBA caliber guard. Eventually that runs out and the team turns back into a pumpkin. I think Ricky Rubio is a very, very sneaky, big injury for the Cavs. Yeah, I think it's humongous. And you see that the Cavs right now, I don't know if it's been completed or not, but they're in the middle of working with the Lakers on a trade to obtain Rajon Rondo, who I think can actually play a Ricky Rubio-like role very well. Not a big score, pass-first guy. Rondo might actually offer a little more on the defensive side of things, but I just don't know if he can step up in a starting role if, if the need occurs the way Rubio has. You know, he started Cleveland's past three games with Darius Garland on the COVID list. And in those three games, he averaged 17 points, seven boards, seven assists. I, I mean, those are wildly good numbers compared to Rubio being a career about 12.78 assist guy. 17, seven and seven is incredible. He has had five double digit assist games for them four of which have come off the bench. And, and despite playing a bench role for the majority of the season with Cleveland, I mean, this is a guy who, among active players, was sixth on the team in both minutes per game and points per game. He was second on the team in assists and 15th in the league in assists per game, tied for the team lead in steals, and had the best assist-to-turnover ratio of anyone on that team who was averaging more than two assists per game. I mean, he was arguably having his most efficient season in the NBA. And this is a humongous loss. I mean, someone like Denzel Valentine, who can provide spurts here and there, in my opinion, he's going to have to step up and be the backup point guard. You know, now maybe with Rajon Rondo, Valentine can be 
your backup shooting guard, third string point guard, but you're going to need unlikely guys to really step up with no Sexton and now no Rubio. And think about this. Rondo is a very good Ricky Rubio comp if he's motivated, if he's in the bubble and he thinks he has a championship to win. How motivated is constantly disgruntled Ricky uh, Rajon Rondo going to be on a Cavs team? I'm not sure. I'm not saying that he couldn't say, hey, I'm going to make the playoffs, going to be a leader, I'm going to be a veteran. But I mentioned if Darius Garland starts to turn south, if things start to get too much for him, if he has a little bit of a sophomore slump, I think this team is is something to watch for. This team was red hot. I think this could be a V-shape or the opposite of a V-shape, an N-shape recovery where it goes straight up and then straight back down if this team loses the magic in a bottle that they've had so far. Yeah, we'll we'll see. It's definitely very concerning. You know, I would say with the new expanded playoff format with that 7-10 to 10 seed play-in game, I would say it's unlikely Cleveland misses that altogether, but it would not shock me at all if they drop from a top four seed in the East to now somewhere in that 7-10 to 10 range as other teams heat up. You know, we're still waiting on some teams to wake up. You know, teams like the Knicks, of course. Teams like, I think, more so the Atlanta Hawks, who you mentioned you know, in terms of young faces of the league, how Zion's nowhere to be found and Lucas seems to have taken a step back. Trey Young coming off an Eastern Conference uh, Eastern Conference Finals appearance, or uh, I'm sorry, was it second round finals? Eastern Conference Finals, yep, lost to the Bucks. That's right, Conference Finals. Bucks-Nets was the second round. I always forget because that was such an amazing series. It felt like the Conference Finals. But Trey Young coming off an Eastern Conference Finals appearance, he has also taken a huge step back. But we'll see. Now with Cleveland seemingly undoubtedly going to take a step back. We'll see if maybe Atlanta can move up. Other teams can move up. And yeah, the Cavs could be facing a play-in scenario, which a week ago, I mean, it seemed like they had home court in the first round on their radar. Something to keep in mind. We just saw the Brooklyn Nets get a bunch of guys back and lose as a favorite to the Philadelphia 76ers tonight. Trey Young comes back from the COVID list. The Hawks get a lot of guys back. He shoots eight for 23. They lose to the Bulls. I think this is going to be a theme to pay attention to. When teams get a lot of guys back, are they actually back or do they need to get a game or two under their belt before they get to full strength? I would say fade a team that just got a bunch of guys back. That's a good rule of thumb. Look to fade a team that just got a bunch of guys back. The market probably overemphasizes how game ready they are in day one. With you 100% there. You say one to two. I say even two to three games to get back because they got to get their legs under them, right? Being on the court's not enough. You have to be in game shape. And and I think two games right there is the magic number to get back into game shape with you a thousand percent on fading teams when they first get their guys back. So let's talk about some games. Uh, I've got two games in mind, a New Year's Eve game and a New Year's Day game. So let's start Saturday, New Year's Day. The first game we're talking about on this show of 2022. And man, this should be a fun one. It's the Golden State Warriors at the Utah Jazz. McKenzie, your projection has the Jazz as one-point favorites in this one. Now, they, of course, have a game New Year's Eve against the Timberwolves, so they have a game between now and then. The Warriors, with the Nuggets cancellation, are going to be on three days rest going into that. How do you see that one unfolding? A lot to unpack here. So Golden State, I have completely platonic ideal no injuries no rest advantages no nothing as by far or significantly better than any team in the league at least a point better than the jazz or the suns or the bucks all those teams in the second tier 
The Golden State Warriors aren't in a platonic ideal right now, and neither are the Jazz, so a lot of factors come together here. Draymond Green, we talked about him upset with the COVID designation and the COVID rules. That's probably because he has a lot of time on his couch twiddling around on his thumbs to tweet things because he has the COVID. He's not going to be there Saturday night. The Jazz, however, have a couple factors against them as well. Donovan Mitchell, he missed the last couple of games. He should be back Friday night, the game before this. But we just talked about dynamic, significant players for a team may need a game or two to get under that belt, to get under their belt before they are them all-star selves. So all that said, I take two points off of Golden State for Draymond Green not being there. I take a point away for the Jazz for being on a back-to-back. They are at home, which is about half the effect of being a back-to-back on the road on the second night. And I have the Jazz about a point favorite. So the question is, and this is, I'll come back to this when I do my best bet, does the effect of being on a back-to-back night versus the effect of not having Draymond Green equal out, or is there perhaps one reason why one of those effects is mitigated? But before I give my thoughts in the best bet section, what do you think about the game? Well, this game intrigues me a lot. I, I mean, I don't know quite what to think about this game just yet. I'm interested in the total on this game personally. I don't know if you have a projected total, um, but Utah minus one is interesting because this could very well, just because the Warriors are the Warriors, best team in basketball this year, this could flip. We've seen, you know, your projections are usually really close to accurate, but we've seen them be, you know, a point or two different. And in this case, a two point differential could be Warriors minus one. And if that was to happen, this would be the first time all season that the Utah Jazz have been an underdog. Every other team in the NBA has been an underdog at least five times. Golden State and the Nets have been underdogs five times. The Utah Jazz are the only team in the league that has not once this season been an underdog. So let's take a look at how these teams fare, right? Utah split even. They're 17 and 17 against the spread on no rest, which this is the second game of back-to-back. They're three and two against the spread. With a rest disadvantage, they're three and two against the spread, and in conference games, ten and eight against the spread. All slightly favorable, but still favorable numbers for Utah. Golden State, twenty-one and eleven. They're now tied. They were head and shoulders above the rest, except for Cleveland. They were second best in the NBA. Now tied against the spread with the Bulls, but after a loss, they're the best team in the league. Five and one against the spread after a loss. And that's a straight-up loss, by the way. They lost to the Nuggets by three their last game. On the road, they've covered eight out of 14 times. They are three and two as an underdog. Five and two with two to three days off. They're going to have three days off in this one. And six and three with a rest advantage. The numbers tell me Golden State is the play here in what is seemingly a pick But do you have a total on this, a projected total on this, McKenzie? I don't, you know, more than 48 hours out, it's usually difficult, but Tough. given where the Jazz usually are around 220, where the Warriors are around 212, I could see this coming up around 216. Yeah, 217 was what I was thinking, so I definitely like where you're at there. That might be the play. I'm I'm thinking under. You know, I, I, I mentioned how I lost my best bet last episode. I originally said Golden State under 220 and a half against Denver. I reneged as the line had dropped from Golden State minus eight when I was prepping to Golden State minus six at the time of the show. I took him minus six. 
They lose by three, but they lose 89-86. The under would have been one of my easiest hits of the year and would have improved my best bets to 4-0. So this is a game where I'm leaning more than anything on the under. It also depends on Mitchell because Utah is 17-16-1 on the over, but that's about 50% either way. Golden State, of course, hits the under 69% of the time. But Utah has gone under in all three games that Donovan Mitchell has missed this season. So if Mitchell's out, I say absolutely hit the under on this one. But there are a lot of variables between now and Saturday. Like you said, 48 hours, a lot can change, especially in the world we live in right now. So right now, I would say keep an eye on the total. I like the under. If Mitchell doesn't play, I love the under. But... This is going to be an interesting game, and I'm really intrigued to see if Utah ends up being an underdog for the first time this season in what will be their 35th game. Number one seed last year. Kind of makes sense that they would come in with those type of lofty expectations. Donovan Mitchell, by the way, latest news, he's going to be come back tomorrow versus the Timberwolves. So he will be back. Hopefully uh, we'll also play Saturday. Sometimes they rest players on the second night of a back-to-back coming back from injury, but he should be at least uh, ready to go Friday. So probably Saturday too, before I give my final thoughts on the game during the best bet section, what is your best bet for this week? Well, my best bet leads into the new year's Eve game that I wanted to look at. It's the Chicago bulls heading to Indianapolis to take on the Indiana Pacers. Now I know that the Pacers are 14 and 21 this season, So when we pick two games to highlight and discuss, it's like, why are we talking about the 14 and 21 Pacers? Well, first off, folks, this is a great rivalry. The Bulls and Pacers have played each other 197 times in their team's histories. The Bulls have an advantage, 100 wins to 97 losses. This has historically, I think, been one of the most underrated rivalries in NBA history because I think it's one of the best and it never gets talked about. Now, this is the third matchup of the season between these two teams. Uh, The first two were both in Chicago. The Bulls lost, got obliterated on November 22nd, 109 to 77. They were one and a half point favorites in that one, but they bounced back just a few days ago with a 113 to 105, eight point win in a game they were giving four and a half. So the Bulls have, each team has won once, each team has covered once. But if you go back, The Indiana Pacers have outright won 11 of the last 14 in this rivalry. They have covered in six of the past nine. So the 11 out of 14, that winning streak, that goes back to January 6, 2018. So over the past three years, the Pacers have won 11 out of 14. But these are two streaky teams. The Chicago Bulls, are in the middle of one of the hottest streaks in the NBA all season. They just beat the Hawks in back-to-back games, scoring 130 and 131 respectively. DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine each scored 55 points in those two games. Nikola Vucevic averaged 20 points, 18 and a half rebounds in those two games. And since the Bulls, who were one of the first teams in the NBA to have an Omicron or Omicron outbreak, since the Bulls have returned to action after a couple postponements, they have scored at least 113 points in all five games since their return, and they have averaged nearly 125 points per game. The Indiana Pacers 
I mentioned both these teams are streaky. Well, the Pacers started the year one and four against the spread, went 14, nine and one against the spread in the middle section of the season to date. And they are currently in the midst of a one and five stretch against the spread. The Pacers are on the down, the Bulls are on the up, and the Bulls are only three point favorites in this one. This seems too easy because it is too easy. Bulls minus three, best bet on this episode. I do not disagree with a word you said. The Indiana Pacers have a new coach. Some say an elite coach in Rick Carlisle. I wrote a a forum post on the pregame.com forums early in this year recommending a bet against the Pacers because I said Rick Carlisle's got to knock these guys down before they build them back up again. Now it comes out that it doesn't seem like these are the guys that he wants to build back up again. Rumors around Indiana is that a complete rebuild is in the offing. If I'm hearing that, that means DeMonte Sabonis is hearing that. That means Miles Turner is hearing that. That means Malcolm Brogdon is hearing that. Something in the water is telling everybody, hey, something's amiss, and they're not giving the effort that they had been in that middle stretch of the season when they were 14 or 9 or whatever. And I think this is the most telling about why something is amiss in Indiana, and they are a bet against team currently. The Pacers, with Rick Carlisle coaching, had a great first quarter margin, still do. Top five in the NBA. That was number one for about two months by far. They were about five points per game, better than their opponents in the first quarter. Whether it was the game plan that Carl came up with or the specific kind of roster they had, they were killing teams in the first quarter. Well, if you bet against the Pacers, the last eight games in the first quarter, you've cashed seven times, lost only one against the spread in the first quarter. This strength of theirs has now been a glaring weakness. They're starting off games poorly and continuing to play poorly. The Pacers are a fade team right now, probably until the trade deadline when we see where Carlisle wants to shift this roster. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I just think the Pacers... They just look flat, you know, just, just for a, an NBA fan, a basketball fan watching them, not looking at numbers. And I mentioned right now, if you look at the numbers, they are just tremendously on the downslide, but just watching them as a basketball team, they look flat and maybe it's Sabonis and Turner and Brogdon. Maybe they've seen those headlines and heard those rumors, but they don't look engaged. And the Chicago Bulls, I mean, this is an all-star lineup to begin with. DeRozan, Levine, Vucevic, I mean, Lonzo Ball. He put up a goose egg in their first matchup. That 32-point loss, November 22nd, 0 points, 0 of 7 from the field, 0 of 4 from 3. He ain't putting up another goose egg. I mean, that to me is a very fluky game. I know the Pacers have won 11 out of 14 in this rivalry. The Bulls have won 3 out of 4. It's going to be 4 out of 5, and it's going to be by at least 3 points. Can't disagree with the word you said. All right, my best bet, I want to go to Saturday night, Salt Lake City, the Utah Jazz. I'm not sure where this number is going to come out. I'm going to say if it's Jazz minus three or less, if it's in that window, best bet on the Jazz. This is simple. There's two factors that are making this about equal teams. One's pulling against one team, one's pulling against the other team. I don't think they're equal. Draymond Green has missed 11 games the last two years for the Warriors. This will be another one. In those games, the Warriors are allowing 120 points per game. That's on average to the average team. Now they're facing a team with the number one net rating on offense with a bullet, the Jazz. The Jazz have a better net rating compared to the second team. They have the same gap to the second team as the second team has to the 20th 
best team on offense. It hasn't been talked about, but this is a historically good offense going against a Warriors team without their defensive anchor on the road in one of the toughest buildings to play in the league. Number two, the Warriors factor against them. Oh, I'm sorry. Three, two, one. Number two, the factor that's going against the Jazz having to play on the second night of a back-to-back, I don't think that should factor at all for several reasons. One, this is one of the deepest, most balanced offensive attacks in the league. They don't put too much stress on any one player that's going to tire them out for the second night of a back-to-back. We see this in the numbers. 15-4 and the last two years straight up on the second night of a back-to-back. Better than they do on average in any game on the second night of a back-to-back. This Jazz team is not negatively affected. Also, they are going to rest Mike Conley on a Friday so that he's ready to go Saturday night. Donovan Mitchell hasn't played the last couple games. He's going to be fresh Saturday night. And Rudy Gobert, I have no worries about him. He doesn't shoot enough to get his arms tired. He's going to be there Friday and Saturday night anchoring the paint. So I think this Jazz team is just as good as ever. I think the market's going to keep them cheap because of the second night of a back-to-back. I think that's a mistake. And I think Draymond Green, as much as he's fallen off the last few years, he said it himself, I've sucked the last few years. This year, he doesn't. And this year, we've seen defensively, they're not the same. I think the Jazz, great offense, shows out Saturday night and gets this dub. By price, Jazz minus three, best bet. Now, are you sticking with that even if Donovan Mitchell doesn't play because it's a back-to-back and he's coming off an injury? Very, very good proviso. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. So best bet, but but here's the thing. We give best bets on the show in Vegas. We price uncertainty. I'm reading the tea leaves. I think Mitchell took those, didn't travel with the team on the road trip so that he could come back Friday for a little, get his, get his sweat going so that he could play Saturday. Cause this is a big game for the jazz. They've never been the, the team in a conference. This would be a big step towards putting them, in that role as the team to beat. I think that's why Mitchell will play Saturday. But hey, if he doesn't and it loses, I'm two and three. I am not making any conditional bets. This is a bet I would make right now once the line comes out. I'm assuming Mitchell's going to play. That's the assumption I make when I make my bet. Make your own assumptions. But yes, best bet on the Jazz. Hopefully Mitchell plays. I think he does. But yeah, I'm going to be bummed if he doesn't because it's not going to be a good bet, I think, if he doesn't. My man, I love the accountability. I'm with you. I think Donovan Mitchell is only returning for this Minnesota game. And look, we've got no inside information, Mackenzie and myself. But what we spoke about earlier, about needing a game or two to get your legs underneath you after a break, I think Mitchell is returning for Minnesota because I project him to play about 28 minutes in that Jazz Timberwolves game. Just enough to, like you said, break a sweat, get out there, get some shots up, and then be ready to attack Steph and the Warriors on New Year's Day on Saturday night. McKenzie says Utah minus three or less. I'm saying Bulls minus three against the Pacers. Those are our best bets. Catch him on Twitter at Mac and Rivers. Catch me on the socials on Twitter at the Joe Serralo and on Instagram at Joe Serralo. And have yourselves a happy New Year's. Thanks for listening, guys.